2: Hello, and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, April 21st, 2023. In this week's episode, two Iowa teens plead guilty to first-degree murder for the beating death of their high school Spanish teacher, allegedly after receiving a bad grade. Also, we continue to follow Lori Vallow's ongoing trial as her surviving son takes the stand against his mother for the murder of her two younger children. But first, breaking news as prosecutors drop charges against actor Alec Baldwin for his role in the on-set shooting that left Russ cinematographer Helena Hutchins dead. Today, we are joined by Anjanette Levy, a reporter, correspondent, and host with the Law and Crime Network. Anjanette, welcome.
0: Hey, thank you for having me, Josh.
2: We were looking forward to this. Um, uh, For listeners who aren't familiar with your work, could you please tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Well, I started working in news, um, I'm going to have to say the year, I guess, right, 2002. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interned before that, right? Um, Like we all did in college. But um, I started out working in local news, uh, moved from the Cincinnati market to the Green Bay market, back to the Cincinnati market, uh, covered crime and courts for many years, really loved covering crime and trials and politics, Um, but uh, left local news looking for a new adventure and a new challenge. And it landed at the long crime network so it's it's been a good fit and you know i just i love a good mystery i love the law learning about it so i'm not a lawyer a lot of people think i am um but i'm i'm still looking to find some time in my life to maybe go to law school one day <laughs>
2: Well, uh, you <laughs> are sure one happen. of. <laughs> right. What, <laughs> not sure you want the expense of it all either. Right. Um, but uh, you are one of my favorites on law and crime. I always look forward to Thank when you, you are are covering things because you have such an uh, interesting take on these cases. So we're, we're uh, curious to hear what you have to say about the ones that we're talking about today. So let's jump right in. First, we go to Santa Fe, New Mexico were less than three months after officially announcing involuntary manslaughter charges against actor Alec Baldwin for the fatal onset shooting of Russ cinematographer Helena Hutchins. In a shocking turn of events, Santa Fe officials have announced that all charges against the actor will be dropped. Baldwin and an, an actor and producer on the film had vehemently denied any wrongdoing in the fatal shooting, even claiming that he hadn't pulled the trigger though that claim was later challenged by an FBI forensic investigation of the weapon. More on that later. The investigation and subsequent prosecution was fraught with difficulties from the onset, with prosecutors taking over a year to bring charges after requesting hundreds of thousands of dollars of emergency funds as they continued to build their case. Shortly after announcing charges, New Mexico prosecutors were forced to amend a firearm enhancement because the charge, get this, wasn't even a part of the state's statute at the time of the shooting this was followed just last month by a third party uh, charged in the shooting assistant director david halls pleading no contest to a misdemeanor charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon he was sentenced to six months of unsupervised probation along with 24 hours of community service and was ordered to pay a 500 dollars fine finally both the special prosecutor who first brought the case, and the elected DA stepped down from handling the case, which brings us to this week's surprising announcement. Notably, the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, will still face involuntary manslaughter charges for the cinematographer's 2021 death. Meanwhile, the Rust production has resumed filming this month at Yellowstone Ranch in Montana. All right, Anjanette, jump right in. Was this shocking to you?
0: Not completely, and, and yeah. not really. and And I'll explain to you why. Please. Uh, From the very beginning, when the prosecutors, the special prosecutor and the elected prosecutor filed this charge, I found it to be very odd because typically prosecutors do not comment on a case unless a charge has been filed. That didn't happen in this case. There was a media tour. In which yeah. the two women went on, uh, you know, the circuit and granted interviews to a lot of the big networks, the legacy media, Fox News, CNN. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't declined my request for an interview. Uh, not <laughs> not sure why, but uh you know, we had talked about this. Jesse and I did, and I said to him at the time. Why are they doing this? Why? There's no paperwork filed. There's no charge filed. They're announcing that they are going to file charges. That's not the typical order of things. And I'm not sure it's actually even ethical. So that that seemed like mistake number one. Then they file the charge and there's, there's a problem with the charge, as you pointed out. Uh, so that was strike number two. Then, you know, there's all this questioning about whether or not they could really have the goods, whether or not they can prove it. Then there's uh, challenges to Andrea Reeb, the special prosecutor, being on the case because of a conflict of interest. Alec Baldwin's lawyers bring that up. She's like, I'm out of here. Maybe she saw problems with the case. I don't know. Um, But she ducked out and stepped down. And now special prosecutors come in and they say, uh, you know, we got it. We've got some new information. We've got to take care of this. We have to investigate. We can't meet the time deadlines. So maybe they came in, looked at this and said, i'm not so sure about that there's some reporting out there that i'm trying to confirm that this gun may have actually been altered to malfunction i don't recall the fbi report on the gun mentioning that Uh, but if that is the case because this was a prop gun uh, that's a big problem for the prosecution a big problem for the state so I, i don't i did not find this shocking also josh we were hearing rumblings that there may not be a hearing so we oh, couldn't get anybody to say anything but that was in the last week and a half or so
2: interesting yeah i i completely agree with you about this kind of media blitz that they did it just i don't know if it's unethical but it seemed unseen it didn't smell it did, yes no it, didn't smell it right. Seemed unprofessional i mean yes when i, I having been a prosecutor they, they scared us to death about talking to the press because they were like, listen, <laughs> your your job is is taking place in the courtroom. Let things hash out in there. That's where you have to speak about these cases. Maybe after a case is all done, you can make a comment to, to media or something. But it, routinely you see large prosecuting offices like Los Angeles that if they're questioned about things, they say, listen, we're going to let this play out in court. We don't want to affect uh the you know potential jury pool we don't want to make comments about a case beforehand but they not only made comments about it but like talked about their strategy talked about the strength of the case it just it seemed like they were setting themselves up for this kind of embarrassment that we're now seeing that office experience with the dismissal of this case i I guess that's my next question do you think this is a big loss for them is this an embarrassment for that office
0: I think it's a tremendous embarrassment. And even though a special prosecutor was brought in, a new special prosecutor to handle this, the buck stops with the elected uh, prosecutor, Mary Carmack uh, Altweiss. Uh, yeah. She's the one that went on television along with uh, the spe- uh, first special prosecutor and said, we're, go- we're going to do this. I mean, yes, this was a high profile case, uh, no doubt. I mean, everybody wanted to know what the end result was going to be of the investigation. And and Helena Hutchins and her family deserve that. The public uh, deserves to know what happened because it, it's such a tragedy and it was so preventable. Yeah, uh, But I thought it was really unseemly. I think she owes her constituents some answers. And really, if they can't prove the case against Alec Baldwin... It should never have been brought in the first place Excellent and it's point. not fair to him either it's not fair to the people of new mexico who have paid how much money for this investigation so i i think i think she owes the public an answer despite the fact that a special prosecutor who's acting independently uh, is handling this because she was in it yeah. <laughs> she was in it when this charge was filed
2: yeah yeah no i i completely agree with you i mean part of what a prosecutor does in making a filing decision isn't, well, let's throw this against the wall and see if it sticks. Let's let's take a chance on this novel theory that we have of criminal liability and see if anybody buys it. You're supposed to make the decision of will, the standard is, will this hold up beyond a reasonable doubt in court? And if you don't reach that standard, then you shouldn't file. So I agree with you. It You begin to question at this point whether or not they even should have filed the case to begin with. Right. when when I first heard this report of of um, the case being dismissed, my first question was well what changed what you know you had a year to investigate it what right. now has changed yes and you alluded to this but I the the Wall Street Journal this morning reported that according to a person with knowledge of the case the gun was modified before it reached the set in a way that could have allowed it to fire a bullet without the trigger being pulled. If that is true that's huge. And do you think that was the deciding factor in dismissing this this case, if that's true?
0: And if that is true, that's, you know, the the key phrase there, the key clarifier. Um, Yes. And why didn't we know about this sooner? Because wouldn't the FBI review of the firearm have shown that? Um, So I I think that's part of it. Or maybe there's more to this. Uh, You know, I said, as I told you, I was trying I'm trying to confirm that reporting, uh, but you know, there may have been more going on here. Yeah. We we just don't know. But, you know, I think it's important that you point out this was not a, an overnight decision that was no. made. This investigation has been going on for over a year. There was no excuse for this.
2: No, it wasn't like they could say we had a lack of time or resources to get this right. And we were in a rush to get this case filed. They took a year. They had extra funds allocated to them they had the assistance of the fbi and still now you're telling us there's this new revelation my suspicion and it's a suspicion i'm not (laughs) i'm not basing this off of anything but me kind of trying to put together the pieces here is that
0: you've been around the block
2: (laughs) right he they the fbi uh, apparently inspected the weapon and came to these conclusions but. There were reports at the time that they had somehow damaged the weapon in Mm -hmm. inspecting it. My thinking is that Baldwin's attorneys got a hold of that, said, we want to do our own independent analysis. And maybe they got an expert to come in and say, hey, by the way, I disagree with what the FBI says. I think this weapon can be fired without pulling the trigger. um, And that that was enough for these new special prosecutors who are new to the game uh, you know, not having as much of a dog in the fight enough for them to hang their hat on and say, you know what, we're 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 wiping our hands of this whole mess before it gets even worse. What do you think?
0: I, I think that's that's possible. That that's very possible. Or if the gun, maybe there was a report earlier that it had been destroyed or damaged in the FBI examination. If you can't turn that over for the defense to examine it, I mean that's going to really hurt your case as well. Oh yeah. So, um, because they should they should be permitted, as the case moves forward, if it was bound over to test the evidence yeah. and alec baldwin let's let's not mince words. He's a wealthy guy. He can pay for the best defense <laughs> money can buy,
2: and i I think he did. But mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, there's there are motions the defense can bring that if somehow evidence was destroyed in the investigation, they can move to have that excluded completely. So maybe they saw you know you like you pointed out he's got well paid litigious attorneys maybe they saw on the horizon that they were going to bring that motion that this whole case would would fall apart if they don't even have the weapon to bring into court very uh, very thing, interesting so, go ahead
0: i do think a lot of people may have to eat some crow because you know we i spoke with firearms experts armors people like that who said he, you know, Alec Baldwin's on ABC News telling George Stephanopoulos that I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't pull yeah. him. He's like adamant. And everybody thought, oh, he's lying. He's crazy. Um, and, you know, there w- there may have been, I was told a way that he thought maybe his finger wasn't on the trigger, but that he thought he didn't pull it. But maybe something happened. But, you know, if that gun, a prop gun was modified in order to do that, why? I don't know. And if it, it was If it was, why even have rounds, even dummy rounds in it? Because you can add that after the fact, you know, that sound effect or whatever. So I think there's a lot of questions still to be answered. But a lot of people said, you know, oh, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's crazy. He's lying or whatever. But if we find out that he was not lying and that he was not making this up or rationalizing, then yikes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You bring me to my last question on this is you make an excellent point. Even if that gun was modified, what are live rounds doing in that gun exactly. to begin with? And my question then is do you think this dismissal against Baldwin will affect the armorer's case? Because she's still facing involuntary manslaughter charges. Do you think it weakens their case against her, or is this, do they still kind of have a clear path towards her liability?
0: I, I can't answer that question. Jason Bowles, her lawyer, has been very vocal in defending her since the very beginning. Um he he called this sabotage at one point. I, I'm not so sure about that, but now I'm like revisiting that thinking and like, maybe he's I mean, if this is true, yeah. uh, you know, if this is happening, maybe maybe somebody did do something crazy. But, um, you know, Dave Halls, obviously the first assistant director um admitted to his culpability. He entered into a plea bargain. He's the one that gave the gun to Alec Baldwin and, and told him it was okay. So, um we don't, we don't know. I think there are still still a lot of questions to be answered with regard to how those rounds ended up in there. Maybe this woman Hannah Gutierrez Reed uh, the armor was overwhelmed and overworked and a mistake was made, but she's swearing up and down that she didn't put live rounds in the gun. So something happened. We have yeah. to know what happened. And Jason bulls's statement after this was very tame and muted. So I kind of got the feeling I'm wondering if he's thinking or hoping uh my client's case is going to go away too. Yeah. Because maybe he's got something to show that she didn't maybe do anything wrong. Maybe somebody did something wrong on set. Dave Halls grabs the gun gives it to Alec Baldwin, and we know what happens after that. So I think we have to wait and see. And, you know, we're recording this on Friday, late in the day on Friday. There will be a status hearing in New Mexico on both Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's cases. So that's going to happen uh, later in the day.
2: Interesting. Interesting. My, my, again, suspicion is that now that Baldwin is out of the case, if it remains that way, that... They might just kind of quietly dismiss the case against her down the line, knowing that kind of the media frenzy may have, that storm may have passed and they can get away with it with less, less scrutiny. But that's kind of a sad state of affairs, but we will continue to watch it to see if we get any updates. All right, well, let's turn to Fairfield, Iowa, where weeks before a potential trial, teens Willard Miller and Jeremy Goodale have played guilty to the 2021 murder of their Spanish teacher, reportedly over a bad grade. The body of Fairfield High School teacher Noema Graber was discovered in a local park covered in a tarp after she had been fatally struck with a baseball bat. After initially pleading not guilty, the teens both pled guilty to first-degree murder for their roles in the former teacher's bludgeoning death. Following the murder, investigators were led to the teens after classmates shared Snapchat messages from Miller and Goodale in which they reportedly get this bragged about their involvement. When questioned by detectives, Miller admitted to confronting Graeber the day of her death after being frustrated with a grade he received in Spanish class that lowered his overall GPA. However, he denied any involvement in her death at the time. The teens who were 16 at the time of the murder are not eligible for life sentences without the possibility of parole given their their ages at the time of the incident. Prosecutors have recommended a minimum sentence of 25 years for Jeremy Goodell, who had agreed to testify against Miller at trial. Meanwhile, prosecutors have recommended a minimum sentence of 30 years for Willard Miller. Ultimately, a judge will make the final determination with sentencing hearings scheduled for July 5th for Miller, and August 23rd, 23rd pardon me, for Goodell. A lot to unpack here uh, about this case. But the the first thing I want to talk about, Anjanette, is that you, you do not often see pleas in, in first-degree murder cases because of the exposure. They're looking at decades in prison, and a lot right. of times the thinking is people might as well take their chances and see if something happens. What do you think was the difference maker in this case that, had them decide to take these pleas. I
0: I think rolling the dice in this case would have been very dangerous. Uh, These kids can hope one day that they can see the light of day. Of course, they they wouldn't have gotten LWAP, as you said, life in prison without parole. Uh, But I mean, the the evidence is overwhelming in this case. There were Snapchat conversations between these two in which they kind of bragged about this. It's so horrific. I mean, can you imagine beating a teacher, anybody to death and, and and keep in mind, you know, you might see this in a movie. It kind of makes me think about that scene in casino at the end where Joe Pesci, you know, is in the cornfield, um, and is beaten to death. I mean, that's not a, that's not a quick way to go unless you really get somebody unconscious and whack them. Uh, and, and I I hate to be graphic, but think about what a horrific way that would be to die, um, over you didn't like the grade you got in spanish class. so yeah. i think that there was overwhelming evidence there was no need to take this to trial. you know a lot of people will just fight a case no matter what but sometimes you're better off just just admitting to what you did and and doing what accepting responsibility it would be different if they didn't have a good case.
2: yeah. yeah. you know the, the as you were talking i i wonder if part of the reason or you know at least played a role in their brains about why they made this decision was you imagine sitting through this as jurors how inflamed you would become by this whole thing yes. you're right you're you're, you're you, yes it is graphic but taking somebody's life with a baseball bat is not as simple as you know a couple of whacks over the head no. it, it, it it it's it's you're involved personally in that person's death then it's, you have time to the, stop
0: after the correct. first or second, you know, if you're in a rage or what have you, correct. there is time to dial it back and say, my God, what did I just do? What are we that doing? Didn't happen. Right.
2: No, didn't happen. Uh, the fact that they were lying in wait to commit this crime, the fact that they bragged about it afterwards, the fact that this whole thing was over a bad grade, all of that, the more you talk about it, you can imagine how. Jurors would react and how a sentencing judge might react after having here heard all of that play out. And they might have thought to themselves, like you're saying, they've got us dead to rights, and I don't want all of this being played out in a court over several weeks. Let's let's get ourselves about as good a deal as we can now. It's it the more I think about it, that probably was a big motivating factor. And Jeanette, we've seen um cases in the past of teens committing, you know, unspeakable crimes, but talk a little bit and i've and i've kind of uh already gotten into it but there is something especially heinous about this because in other crimes that we see with young people it's kind of impulsive and we talked about this a little bit before we started to record that you know this isn't like an a, a teenager pushing someone into oncoming traffic because they had momentary kind of loss of their emotions this was planned they were waiting for her what do you think about that
0: I think you're right. Um, You know, who knows what was going on in these the lives of these children? I mean, if you're that worried about a Spanish grade, are you are you being abused at home or your parents so hard on you that? you get your GPA brought down, your your parents are going to have a serious freak out on you. But this kind of, to me, goes beyond the pale and goes beyond that uh, because, and, and who knows what imp- one person's impulsive is versus another person's impulsive. I mean, kids, like, you know, the prefrontal cortex you hear is not developed until you're right. in your early twenties, especially for boys So um, and young men. So, so I don't know, but it, it's certainly not like a, I have no impulse control. Like I have a, I have an eight year old. He literally has impulse control issues. <laughs> right. He does stuff. And then he comes back to me like 20 minutes later and he's like, mommy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did that. Right. So it's not like that. As you pointed out, Um, this was plotted out and, 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 and planned. It's, it's yeah. sickening. So there's and something, it, there's something going on with these kids. I don't know what it is, but there's something very wrong. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We use that phrase cold blooded. This is just, cold-blooded murder. This is just I'm I'm unhappy with you for the most trivial of things and I'm going to take your life in this brutal way. Just really disturbing. Yeah. Last question I have on this is there's been a lot of debate in this country lately about whether or not it's ever appropriate to charge minors as adults. Um I think about that because it, you know, infamously here in Los Angeles, the current DA George Gascone um, has or had a blanket policy against ever charging a minor as an adult, no matter the circumstances. If that person is seventeen or younger, never will be charged as an adult. But then you see cases like this. Do what? What are your thoughts? I guess on those blanket policies, should there should there always remain room for kind of discretion on the part of the prosecutors?
0: I I do have mixed feelings about that. I, I really do, and I I often think prison just punishes people and doesn't really help them you know they they always call these places these state prison systems the department of uh corrections right. and rehabilitation or what have you i mean i i don't know i've talked to a lot of people who've done time they didn't feel like they were rehabilitated or corrected very much i mean they might right. be scared straight uh, per se but i think we just warehouse people um so that's what what i i hate to see somebody who may have possibly made a mistake be placed in prison under adult penalties for the rest of their lives or or even for 30 or 40 years because when they get out it's going to be like to me red and uh, sorry for all the movie references but uh, red in uh, Shawshank Redemption you know what are you going to yeah. do what's he going to do right. when he gets out really I mean is he going to go work in a grocery store what's it means you you've just ruined your life Um, So I have mixed feelings about it. I think that there probably should be room. I think there are are some people that are just damaged and there's may not be much that can be done for them. Um, So this, I could get into a whole different conversation about mental health as well, um, because I feel like basically our prisons are mental health institutions, uh, essentially, um, because so many people who are mentally ill, end up there because they've done things where their mental health or their mental illness was not being treated. But that's just a whole nother conversation. So I think there has to be some room to allow that. But you get these people who are elected and they are elected. They get elected on these platforms and I'm going to be tough on crime or I'm going to you know, I'm going to say kids shouldn't be prosecuted as adults and have blanket policies. I don't think the world is not black and white. It's often gray. So I think there has to be some nuance there.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree to, to the point that I see you making is the point that I share that this has to be done on an individual basis because you're right, yeah. there are so many factors. Mental health, the age of the person, their their development level, all of those other things need to play a role that sometimes, yes, that person shouldn't be charged as an adult. And then other times, maybe, you know what? They're they're committing adult Crimes that, and they should be held responsible right. because they. This wasn't about their their youth playing a role in it, but this was just about you know a cold hearted crime, murder, yeah. uh, which I think is uh, demonstrated in this case. But anyhow. Let's turn to Boise, Idaho, in our last case, where the surviving child of alleged doomsday killer Lori Vallow took the stand this week, testifying against his mother in Vallow's ongoing murder trial in Boise, Idaho. Lori Vallow and her fifth husband, Chad Daybell, stand accused of the murders of her seven year old son, JJ Vallow, and 16 year old daughter, Tylee Ryan. Lori's eldest son, Colby Ryan, testified as a prosecution witness in a highly tense moment for the already emotionally charged trial. Before Colby took the stand, jurors heard a jailhouse phone call between Vallow and Colby after the discovery of his younger siblings' bodies. In the call, Colby can be heard confronting Vallo about the murder of Colby's two younger siblings, with Colby asking his mother if she thought she could continue to hide from him and accusing her of withholding knowledge of her siblings deaths valo pushes back in the phone conversation telling her oldest son that he couldn't know what transpired between her and the children before asserting that jj and tiley were happy and that everything would become clear in the afterlife the bodies of jj and tiley were found buried on chad daybills idaho property in 2020 and the couple were arrested in connection with the deaths jj and tiley were last seen alive in september of 2020 and prosecutors allege that Lori and Chad collected social security and uh, survivor benefits nearing $6,000 per month in the children's names. In addition to the murder and financial crimes allegations surrounding Vallow's children, Lori and Chad face charges of conspiracy and murder for the mysterious death of Chad's late wife, Tammy Debo. The trial against Lori is expected to last several weeks with a judge ruling to remove the possibility of the death penalty if Vallo is convicted. Um... And Jeanette, I know you've been following this case closely. How damaging do you think this testimony was? You have a son testifying. I mean, I it's hard to put this all together to imagine this moment: a son testifying it against his mother for the mother's responsibility in the murder of his two younger siblings. Do you? Do you? What? What do you think was the impact on the jurors?
0: I think it probably was devastating. I think these jurors probably listened to this call and watched this testimony and watched the reaction of Lori Vallow-Daybell and of Colby and probably thought, I have to imagine they thought, what on earth? Yeah. Uh, you know, usually you see, and I know you've covered enough cases, Josh, and you've been involved in enough cases as an attorney to know that a lot of times families stick together. Yeah. They stand unified. Um depending on the relationships in the family, Colby is calling out his mom on a recorded call and basically is telling her that he knows she's lying or that she did something with these children and that it would all become clear in the afterlife. Are you kidding me? I mean, obviously she bought into this. She was delusional. I think we can say that quite clearly, but she's buying into whatever she and Chad Daybell have, are selling or, you know, they're believing their own stuff. Uh, so to think that, you know, it was going to all become clear and everything was okay, I, I just part of me, you know, she obviously knew. To me, I think she knew something was wrong or that it yeah. was not right because when you just tell people like oh, they were zombies and we had to do this for the afterlife. And I'm going to lead the 144,000. I'm the the goddess and all of this stuff. So I have a lot of really um, mixed feelings about this case. I I think that as a mom, if you're a mom or a dad on that juror, you're going to say to yourself, I know where my kids are every minute of the day. And maybe if I don't know where they are every minute of the day, it's nearly every minute of the day. And she had a responsibility and a duty and she did nothing to try to find those children when they yeah. were missing.
2: And and if I didn't know where my kids was were I'd be an absolute wreck until exactly. they were found. But right. I certainly wouldn't be in Hawaii no. uh getting married and acting like everything's fine. Yeah. And not this,
0: talking to anybody who asked you where your kids were.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This I, I agree with you. You know, we talk a lot about her mental health and this kind of cult-like influence that she was under and everything else, but you you're absolutely right to point out that there are there are uh, glimmers of consciousness of guilt in a lot right. of what she's saying that she knows this. She's not proud of what took place. She knows that something bad took place, that they're about to get caught, that this is all about to to unravel. Um, and And even in that conversation with him in the jailhouse call, you know legally we would call it an adoptive admission that he's accusing her of all of this stuff and mm-hmm. she's pushing back a little bit but she's not flat out saying colby you know i had nothing to do with this but <laughs> right. that her that a lot of her silence can be viewed as it in, in adopting his his admission of what she's saying uh, about the death of those two young kids um mm-hmm. let's let's talk about joe calls uh in, in general i my thinking, and I want to hear yours because I know you cover a lot of cases that involve these, is that they're incredibly powerful because I think jurors naturally always want to hear from the defendant, whether that's mm-hmm. the defendant taking the stand, whether that's them in a recorded interview with police. And here you have a jailhouse call. They want to hear what does the defendant have to say about any of this, and, and they got that here. What do you What do mm-hmm. you think about this type of evidence?
0: You know, I've covered cases where... Somebody is in custody and the defense argues, well, the judge, you know, has set such a high bail. Nobody could ever post that. And so you're basically in jail. And this is a way for the state to manufacture evidence or just have potential uh, inculpatory evidence just handed over to them in in a case. And I I understand that argument to a degree, but I think that uh, this is very powerful evidence and She knows she's being recorded. I've been on jail calls with inmates before. And typically, you know, periodically the call is interrupted and it reminds you that you're being recorded and that the calls can be monitored or are being monitored. So, you know what's going on, you know, and sometimes, you know, the mask falls down a little bit and you let your guard down and you hear, you know, an inmate say something on a jail call. Um, I, I think they're hearing from Lori Vallow Daybell. I've kind of thought all along and I don't know this to be true at all, um, but I for several weeks now, I've been thinking to myself, is she going to take the stand and try to explain this? A lot of people tell me I'm nuts when I suggest that. But if this I mean, she never talked to the cops, so maybe she won't take the stand, but it doesn't sound like they're going to put up much of a defense from what we're hearing you know the defense is barely cross-examining any witnesses so what is the defense i yeah. i don't know is it the po- po- potted plant defense where your lawyers yeah. just don't do much you've got to put up a defense for your client right so yeah. uh these calls i think are a way for you know the the um jury to hear from the defendant you always want to hear from the defendant and i don't think they're hearing things that make her look very good on these calls
2: no no and you bring me to my last kind of point on this. Actually, one thing I, I wanted to touch on that you pointed out that I think maybe listeners don't appreciate in these recorded calls is, yeah, this is not being done secretly. I'm I'm most experienced with calls coming out of L.A. County Jail. Every 30 seconds or so, there yeah. is an announcement that comes over, a recorded announcement that is very clearly heard saying, this call is being recorded and it can be used. and so there's no, there's no hiding the ball on whether or right. not these people are aware that they're being recorded. And even in spite of all of that, you, the, it's amazing some of the things you will hear people talk about on these calls. So that's my first point. But you you started to talk about what is the defense going to do? And <laughs> they are playing this almost like death. the death penalty is still on the table. Because sometimes you see this in cases where... There's a guilt phase and then a penalty phase where they're contemplating death. Mm -hmm. And in the guilt phase, they're kind of soft handed about all of it because they just want to kind of preserve their their credibility with the jurors so that when they get to the penalty phase, they can say, please, you know, don't put this person to death. Mm -hmm. And you understand that strategy. But here, this is it. There is no death penalty on the on the table. This is the only shot they have at this defense and and I'm not trying to criticize them but it is curious that there doesn't seem to be a defense mounted. What do you what do you do you have any idea of what they might have in store? Have you heard anything?
0: I have no idea and we've been hearing, you know, through the grapevine that they may not even call any witnesses. So what is going on? I mean, and and I think it's interesting what you point out, a lot of times in a death penalty case, which this is no longer a death penalty case, so there is no Um, penalty phase where you can present mitigating evidence there will be no mitigation in this case so i don't know what they're doing um but they're who knows maybe they just feel so overwhelmed by this and feel that the evidence is overwhelming that there's not much they can do
2: yeah i don't know i don't know i mean they're not
0: blaming chad
2: (laughs) no no which is surprising because you would have thought that would have been the entire case, given that he's also a co-defendant, not yeah. sitting there in court. But um Or Alex Cox,
0: her brother, who's dead, you know, guy. Yeah. You know? They
2: alluded to that, I think, in their opening at least to some extent, that the police were kind of, you know, myopic in their investigation, blah, blah, blah. Uh you thought but you hear maybe that in every they- case. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yes. Sometimes um, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I, and then, I, you know, you think about, well, this is a very, um, uh, you know, high on motive, high on consciousness of guilt type of case. Maybe they'll go after the forensics of it. You know, nothing can actually place your, her there at the time. But it it does not seem as though we've seen that light bulb moment as to understand what the defense actually is.
0: Nope. Interesting. I, I, I do not know. And, you know, Lori Vallow Daybell from everything we know, loves Chad Daybell still and obviously is not willing to roll him under the bus or her late brother under the bus. Um, so I, I don't know. But if you're the defense attorney, I mean, you you would know this better than I would, Josh. Can't you just sit your client down even if they have mental health issues and say, we're going to have to roll your brother under the bus on yeah. this one. We're going yeah. to have to figure this out and you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, can't you do that?
2: <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question because there, they're, the law says that for the most part that the attorney has control over strategy, over kind mm-hmm. of legal strategy, and that it shouldn't be the client entirely steering the ship when it comes to those types of decisions that you point out. But I don't know. They've got this client that they, she might just be telling them under no circumstances are they to do that. And they might feel that you know, that they have some sort of duty to 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 listen to her on that, which to your point, that same type of client may say, I'm going on the stand and there's nothing they can do to stop <laughs> right. her. So I, I don't yeah. think she will. But if, you know, this is one of those cases where you could see you've got this kind of unhinged mercurial sort of client that might just decide that that's what she wants to do. I don't know. Or is
0: she like looking at herself since she's this goddess of 144,000 if like, she truly believes that, it's her, is she a martyr?
2: Right. I mean, I don't He's know.
0: This, I mean, I've kind of thought about that too.
2: Yeah, is this her her time to give her her sermon in front of the world? <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I just think any- about
0: that. Like, is she thinking in the afterlife she's going to be like in the in the books? You know, like she is going to be somebody. I, I've kind of wondered that too. Just a theory. I-
2: I will say her demeanor in court does not seem like somebody who's on murder for trial of their own children it does seem like she whether or not she's still suffering from mental health issues or not she does not seem like somebody who's facing the kind of charges heinous heinous crimes that she is
0: yeah I I would agree
2: yeah and Jeanette this was a pleasure thank you so much for coming on this week where can people find out more about you
0: well, I'm on Twitter quite a bit at Anjanette Five is my handle. Instagram at Anjanette. Um, hit me up. You know I'm on Facebook too, but I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, and you know I'm on Law and Crime most every day on YouTube on the network, uh, our Law and Crime Network sidebar, which I'm hoping you'll come on sometime soon.
2: I, w- I look forward to it. Yeah. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter Esq. Or you can find me at joshuaritter.com. You can find our Sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCDSidebar. Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.